0: We thank you for the day. I thank you for this family. And we are, God, a family that you have knit together in faith. And and I'm so grateful for these people, Lord. I I love them so much. And uh, I just thank you, God, for the honor and the privilege to lead. I thank you, God, for that you have brought us together. Uh, We pray, God, that you would bless us as we go forward. God, that you would make provision for us. And, uh, Lord, that we would make impact in this community, that we would shine brightly for you, God. God, it's so good to see Jim here. Uh, tonight. I'm grateful for him, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for the report uh, from Tim and his doctors, God. Just thank you for all that you're doing. It was great to see Marilyn on Sunday. Uh, We just bring you praise, Lord. We just bring you praise. We are truly thankful for all that you're doing. And now we would ask that you would bless this time in your word. We ask, God, that um, our hearts would not leave this place in the condition that it is now, that maybe you would wreck us a little bit. Or maybe you would show us where we need to repent, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, Lord, for our desire is to look more like you, and we want to know you more, and so use this time by the power of your spirit to, to use your word to, to mold and shape our lives, oh God. I do pray and ask that you would be with me, that you would help me to rightly divide my words, Father. I don't want to lead anyone astray. We love you, so we give you this time as well in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a couple of weeks since we we've been in, in Corinthians. Uh, last week we had our harvest party. Um, the week before that, uh, Tim Wilson taught from First John. Uh, so it was. Uh, this is now three weeks ago that we were in chapter nine, and what we were in the middle of is is Paul's answering some questions that the Corinthian church had um, brought up, some practical things on how do we act. What are the, how should we behave as the church, and what are some things that we should use as markers for our conduct? One of the questions they had, he is in the, and we're in the middle of answering, he actually takes three full chapters to answer their question, and the question was, are we allowed to, can we eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Now you and I, like I said, we, that's not something that you and I run into every day. But the matter of idolatry is, uh, it's, a, it's a constant question in our lives, as to where we place our worship. What is an idol? An idol is, is anything that you would put in the place of the, or in the seat of God in your heart. It's anything that takes the place of God, anything that, that, that um, you place more value in than your, your time or your attention to God. Um, an example just out of my life. And one thing I happened to catch um, last week as I was sick, I uh, took a couple days off of work and um, we don't have cable, but we have Netflix. And so as I was sitting there on the couch or laying in bed wanting to do something, I went to Netflix and and got involved in a um, series that was on in the 90s, you know, and, and on Tuesday, I watched eight episodes straight, you know, nine hours just about, of this particular show. And God, just, toward the end of that day, kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, how much time did you spend with me today? And so for, my, for that day, the, the show had taken an idle spot in my heart. It had interrupted my fellowship, my time with God. It can be, it doesn't have to be this grand temple like they were going to in those days. It's anything that takes the, the spot of, of God's seat in your heart. Um, it, a lot of times it's a shiny object, be it a car or a computer or what have you. Uh, it's a sports team. It's a, um, a handbag. It's a, you know, it, it can be anything. It can be good things, Um, but if it's taken the spot of God, then that's idolatry, and we need to repent of those things. And so they were they were asking the question: Is it okay? And I don't think one thing I haven't made clear that I want to today because it kind of impacts the text today. There was two ways really that they could have eaten meat sacrifices sacrifice to idols in those days. One would be they would go into the market and they would find particular, you know, shops that had been, the meat had been sacrificed to idols, and they brought this meat to the market. And it was often at a better price or a better cut of meat. And so that would be one way. And you would go and buy it, and then you would take it home and grill it and cook it. But they also had the, um, available to them, most of the temples in those days had, for lack of a better term, a restaurant. That you could go to the temple, and there you could have a meal, and obviously that meal would be meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul does distinguish between the two just just slightly as he goes between eight, nine and chapters eight, nine, and ten. Um, and, and more so in 10, he says, it's okay to do one of them, it's not okay to do another." And he explains why. OK? Um, in chapter eight, the primary principles that we learned. That Paul brought out is that an idol really is nothing. It's a, and so to eat the meat sacrificed to idol, you're really eating meat that has been sacrificed to nothing. So it amounts to no big deal, is what he says. But the, the primary principle from chapter 8, and, and really through all of these chapters, is this, that love in the, in the Christian economy, in the, in the way you and I act with one another and with God, Love is greater than knowledge. While the rest of the world, their highest pursuit would be the pursuit of knowledge, God says knowledge is good. Remember, knowledge puffs up, and that's not a bad thing, not puffs up with pride or anything like that. Knowledge puffs up, that's good, but love builds up. And we compared the two things. You could have knowledge that puffs up like a bubble. Bubbles are good you know but it's a bubble or love builds up like a building which is better well love would be obviously and then in chapter 9 paul showed with his life how loving is is the important thing to do he demonstrates the importance of giving up the liberties that he had for the sake of others and that was kind of the idea is that Yes, you can eat meat sacrificed to idols, but if it's going to make a brother stumble, we would consider their, their hang-ups, or, or I'm sorry, their um, the things that convict them as more important than the freedoms that you and I have. And he finishes, um, the, he finishes chapter 9 with the idea of all run in a race. Remember that? We're all running in a race. We're running away in such a way as to win that race. And so the principle there is, you and I, we don't see how close we can dance to the line of sin. That's not success in the Christian life. Uh, Let me see how close I can get without actually sinning. And that's kind of what the Corinthian church wanted to do. Are we allowed to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Does this cross the line or does it not? And Paul says... Why don't you run away in, su- in such a way as to win the race? Get as far away from that line as you possibly can. Be over here somewhere. And so that kind of sets us up then for where we're at in chapter 10, looking at running in a way as, as such a way to win. Now we're going to go back and look at the Israelites and how they failed in that matter. How they danced close to that line, and, and many of them failed. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and so he's taking them back to a history that the Corinthian church would know because Paul taught them from this history. And, and taking them back to the time when Moses brought them out of Egypt and into the wilderness before they go into the promised land. God makes provision for them in that wilderness by giving them a cloud. Now You say, well, what good is that? Well, if you were in the middle of a desert with the scorching heat all day long, a cloud would be a good thing, yes? And God provides all the Israelites this cloud so that they are, you know, blocked from the heat of the sun. They're, they're under this cloud, and not only that, it gives them direction. The, it's the, the cloud of God, and when the cloud of God moved, the people of Israel moved. And they said, we don't, you know, it's, hey, it's sunny again. There goes the cloud. We better go follow it. And so they would, you know, pull up the tent, tent stakes and go and follow the cloud. And he's saying, all of our forefathers, they lived through that. They're God's provision in the cloud. They all passed through the sea. All of them saw the waters divided as the Red Sea was divided. They passed through the sea. The, and, and that's a picture of baptism going from the, the Egypt, the world, to the promised land through that baptism. All that to say God was providing for them. He says in verse 2, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. Uh, God provided for them food every day. Manna from heaven they would collect it. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. That referring to the rock at Rephium that Moses struck with the, the rod that he had turned the water into blood in Egypt. He struck that rock and of course, water flew flow, flowed out of that. And then tradition would say, Jewish tradition would say that that rock either followed them or the water that came from that rock followed them. There's some discrepancy on there. But it was their provision of water for the time that they were in the wilderness, 40 years. Significant amount of water. And, and then... He says, specifically, Paul says in, in this text, that that rock was Christ, who is the living water, which we're going to actually talk about in John chapter 4. I'm not sure if we'll get to it Sunday. We have a, we have a special a, a guest on Sunday, and uh, we're not sure how long he's going to take, but uh, I'm pretty excited about Sunday. So, but uh, we may get into chapter 4 this week, it may be next week, but Christ is the living water. But look at verse 5. Remember, we're looking at Israel as an example. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. He says most of them. But think back to the story. Who of that generation made it into the promised land? Two. Joshua and Caleb. Out of the, the 1.2 million Israelites, roughly, somewhere in there, some would say up to 2 million Israelites that were in the desert at that time, only two people made it. So was, was it that most of them God was not well pleased with? Or all of them except Joshua and Caleb, they're the ones that went into the promised land and said, no, we can do this. God is with us. Look at the size of these grapes. Remember? Look how God is with us. But everybody else doubted. And so God said, fine. We'll flush this generation. We'll start again with your children. And that's what he does. Forty years later, they're the ones that cross over into the promised land. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after the evil things as they also lusted. So what were the hang-ups? What were the troubles? Why did they end up not making it into the promised land? Because they lusted after evil things now it's interesting, Paul is going to liken eating meat sacrificed to idols, eating meat sacrificed to an evil thing, as a lustful option. And the idea behind it is, the Corinthian church was saying, I want to eat that meat because I want to eat it, and I have that right. And that's pride. And that was the hang-up with the, the Israelites as well. Verse seven says, "Do not become idol- and do not become idolaters." as were some of them, as it is written, "The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's not like a good thing. That rose up to play. That's a sexual connotation. It was they were offering themselves to idols in a sexual way. That's what that means there. Including lewd acts. And they fell into idol worship, the, the Israelites in the wilderness. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 fell. That would be referring to Balaam's deception when he told, uh, uh, when Bala- Balaam told Balak to, to have the women go down and entice the men of Israel. Uh, and they would then they would fall because they were worshiping falsely. Verse 9, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. We just read that a couple Sundays ago uh, in John. As, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must too the Son of Man be lifted up. Nor complain. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I was doing good with the whole... Idol worship, evil thing, sexual immorality, I'm okay with all of those, but complaining I do on a regular basis, and I think we all do. Don't complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Think about it this way, and I, I need to remind myself of this as well. What is complaining? Complaining is essentially saying, God, you're not doing a good enough job with my life. That's what complaining is. It's telling God that you're not doing good enough. Because he's in control. And so we're not to complain. It's so dangerous. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul's saying, hey, we're living in the last days. We should be aware of these things. We should learn from their mistakes. It's our responsibility to look at the past and learn from their mistakes and not repeat them. And I like verse 12. Therefore, let let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You and I, as we walk this life, we are to walk circumspectly. That means we're looking at our lives. We're considering the actions that we have. We are humble before the Lord. We don't become haughty. We don't become proud of how well we are doing. We take heed because if we don't, there are things that will trip us up. In the homeschooling circles, there's a company called Vision Forum. I don't know if the majority of you have heard of them. Vision Forum is a a, uh, company that produces curriculum and books and movies and and all kinds of things for the homeschool um, community. And they um, are very popular, uh, especially among young men uh, and young boys, very popular products and things like that. Doug Phelps was the president of Vision Forum until last week when he wrote this letter. With thanksgiving to God for his mercy and love, I have stepped down from the office of president at Vision Forum Ministries and have discontinued my speaking responsibilities. There has been serious sin in my life for which God has graciously brought me to repentance I have confessed my sin to my wife and family, my local church, and the board of Vision Forum Ministries. I engaged in a lengthy, inappropriate relationship with a woman. While we did not know each other in a biblical sense, it was nevertheless inappropriately romantic and affectionate. There are no words to describe the magnitude of shame I feel or grief from the injury I caused my beloved bride and children, both of whom have responded to my repentance with what seems a supernatural love and forgiveness. And here's the highlight. I thought too highly of myself and behaved without proper accountability. I've acted grievously before the Lord in a destructive manner, hypocritical of the life message I hold dear, inappropriate for a leader, abusive of the trust that I was given and hurtful to my family and my friends. And he goes on from there. This is a, a, a widely respected man, a man that I've respected for a long time. I appreciate the character building and the things that he does, the the the, the that he poured into these these Curriculums and these books and these movies. But he said, I thought too highly of myself. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. Take heed lest you fall. Old song by a group called Project 86, old hardcore band. Love them. Andrew Swab, the lead singer, he said, and I don't know what this sin was, but it was something that obviously was very grievous. And he said, six seconds of, I can't remember the word, pleasure, six seconds of pleasure, six years of agony. And that's the truth of the matter, is if we think we're, we're higher than we ought, we, we don't take heed lest we fall, then we're going to enjoy something for six seconds that's going to wreck our lives for six years or longer. Or destroy our ministry, or destroy our credibility, and so we need to take heed lest we fall. There are all the time there are people watching us as Christians, your coworkers, your family members, your kids, your neighbors. They're watching you. I'm not saying that we can earn merit by by the way we behave, but we want to make sure we have proper accountability in our lives so that we. Take heed, lest we fall. No man, no man is above it. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape, that you might be able to bear it. Now, that's the verse probably the majority of us have heard before. We're probably familiar with. But it's critical when, in the moment. Because temptation comes very often when we don't expect it. And what you and I need to have a hold of is a firm grasp of Scripture so that when it does come, you and I can remember God promised that whenever temptation comes, first of all, it's, you're You're not unique. This is no you. No temptation comes to you except that which is common to man. Everybody experiences the temptations that you experience, different ways, different forms. But we all struggle with lust. We all struggle with pride. We all struggle with the things that would make us fall. It's common to man, but God is faithful, and there is the promise. God is faithful. You and I need to remember that. God is faithful. So that when we're in that moment, when that temptation does arise, God is faithful. We remember that. And then the next part would come easily. In our temptation, we look for the way of escape. God provides every time. Every time you're tempted. Every time you're tempted, God provides a way of escape. Remember that. Look for it. Now, the way the, 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 the language describes a way of escape is it would have been like a, um, uh, a mountainous route. It's not necessarily going to be an easy way. Consider Joseph as he's running from Potiphar naked. Is that the easy way to go? To run through the streets naked? Not necessarily, but it was the right thing to do. He always provides a way of escape. God, or sorry, Satan would want to destroy us. Each and every time we're tempted, Satan would hope that we would fall. Satan wants to, he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. John 10.10. God provides the way of escape. We must take that escape. Look for that route out. Okay? Okay? Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Just underline that in your Bible. That's a good thing to remember. It doesn't say try to stand up to idolatry. It doesn't say hang in there during your temptation. It doesn't say just grin and bear it, grind your teeth, and pull yourself up by the bootstraps, and you can handle it. You'll get out of it. It says flee. Literally. Run. Like Joseph. Joseph. <laughs> That's how we get away from idolatry and temptation. We flee from it. He says in 15, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourself what I say. They claim to be wise. Paul wants to see if they truly are. And then he goes to the communion table. And that's what chapter 11 is going to deal with more specifically. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and are one body, for we all partake of that one bread." Now, in order to understand this a little better, what you and I need to understand is the culture in those days. Because you and I, we, you know, pull ourselves up to the hog and trough and pay our $9, and then we shovel in as much food as we can and let the next person do the same. Or we're at McDonald's, or we, you know, it's very rarely, I I felt bad tonight, because it's not often right now that I get to sit down with my family for dinner. And we did tonight. <laughs> and we got everybody's plate ready, and we hadn't prayed yet together. And Reese has already got one taco down, you know. He's like, and I was like, hey, buddy, I I know we don't do this often anymore right now, but could could we pray together before we eat? And <laughs> he's like, oh, sorry. And that just tells me we need to eat more together as a family, but in that day and in that culture when you ate with somebody when you broke bread with somebody you became one with that person you you and that person were joined together as you dipped your bread and they dipped their bread into the soup bowl in the middle and you ate from that that was a, a symbolic thing to say we are one we're in we're in commonality and 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 now paul is liking that likening that to the the communion table that as I drink the wine as I, I eat of the bread, and you do the same. We are one in Christ. We are one family, and it unites us together. That breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup unites us. And so they, were, they found the food very valuable. The time together as very valuable. They, the, this connected people together. Verse eighteen: Observe, observe Israel. After the flesh are not those who eat of sacrifices partakers of the altar. And those, and, and as Israel came through the wilderness and even were set up in the promised land, as they sacrificed to their God, they would part of the 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 thing that they would sacrifice: the sheep or the 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 ox. Part of that would go to the priest. Part of it would be burnt as a burnt offering to God. But part of it they would get as well. And they would eat that and then identify with the sacrifice that they needed to have. And they would recognize, oh, hey, I'm eating my sin offering because God has forgiven me of my sins. So he says, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Now, what is he saying there? Well, didn't he say in chapter 8, an idol is nothing? And now he's saying they're sacrificing to demons. What exactly? Well, you think about the, the philosophy behind an idol. It would be demonic in in the, in the philosophy, it, because what's it doing? It's pulling worship away from the one true God. And demons certainly would want that. And so he's saying, you don't want to have fellowship. You don't want to eat with what has been promoted by a demon. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. So... Essentially what he's saying here, and I think he'll get into it a little bit more here, is he's referring now to, as a Christian, you shouldn't be eating at the restaurant there in the temple of an idol. Okay? You shouldn't be going... All right. Not the best analogy, but just so we understand, you don't go to strip clubs to eat the steak. You and I, as Christians, we don't do that. Well, they've got really good steak there. It's, it's a good deal. It doesn't matter. It's the same idea. You don't go to the restaurant that the idols you know, have out in front of their temple. We don't do that. That's what he's saying. Um, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Darkness and light cannot occupy the same space at the same time. We talked about that on Sunday. Or, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? What's the answer to that? Just so I No. <laughs> we are not stronger than he. That's pretty easy to answer. And certainly, we don't want to provoke the Lord to jealousy. What does that mean? God is worthy of all worship. And so when we place an idol where God belongs, we are worshiping that idol rather than worshiping God, and that is incorrect. He says in verse 23, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. I love that. Hey, Paul says, I've got the liberty to do it. I could eat the meat sacrificed to idols, but it's, maybe it's not the best thing for me. Maybe it's not something that would edify. And in that is our clue. The Corinthians were asking the wrong question. They were asking, hey, what harm is it if I eat a meat sacrificed to idol? What harm is it if I'm dancing real close to this line? That's the wrong question. What they should be asking is, what good is it? They're asking, what harm is it for me to do this? And Paul's saying, no, 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 wrong question. What good is it for you to do that? It's of no value. Why dance that that close to the line? Why don't you run In such a way as to win. And here in verse 24 is our principle for all three chapters. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well being. Yes, it's lawful, but is it edifying? Is this going to bless somebody else? Then I'm not going to, if it's not, I'm not going to do it. work out, don't seek your own, what's, what's better for the other, other's well-being? And then he goes on to say, now considering those things sold in the market, eat whatever is sold in the market, asking no questions for conscience, conscience, conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. I love what David Guzik said there. He said, hey, the cow, when it was on the hoof, it was God's. So when it's on the grill... It's God's. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, right on, dude. <laughs> it doesn't matter where it's been sacrificed. The earth is the Lord's. If any, if any of you, of those who do not, uh, where was I? Yeah, verse 27. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever's set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. <clears throat> but if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, Do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's, and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other, for why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? Again, back to the principle in verse 24. We're considering others. You go and somebody invites you to dinner. Hey, I'd love to come. We're going to go hang out with some non-believers. We're going to have dinner with them. That's cool. Go ahead and do it. But as they serve up the steak to you, oh, by the way, that we sacrificed to an idol right before you came over. I hope you don't mind. Do you like it medium rare? Well, um, I do, but I'm going to have to pass. And it's not because your conscience is is seared by that steak joke. Um, (laughs) I didn't even plan that. But that you need to be considering what their conscience is. But if, I partake, but if I partake, just tripping over my words, but if I partake with thanks, why am I evil? Why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's a great principle. Is it going to honor God? Is what I'm doing going to honor God? Yes, do it. no. You're dancing too close to the line. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Paul gives an example from his life again. Everything he does is so that others might be saved. That's the way you and I need to live as well. Love is others-centered. I'm going to keep driving that because you and I need to hear that every day. When we wake up, that should be on our mind. We should drill that into our brains. Love is other-centered. What am I going to do today to show that I'm loving others when I care about them more? Perhaps you guys saw this on the old uh, Facebook, but I thought it was a pretty good example of what others-centered meant. This is from Seth Adam Smith. He said, Having been married only a year and a half, I've recently come to the conclusion that marriage isn't for me. Now, before you start making assumptions, keep reading. I met my wife in high school when we were 15 years old. We were friends for 10 years until we decided no longer we no longer wanted to be just friends. I strongly recommend that best friends fall in love. Good times will be had by all. Nevertheless, Falling in love with my best friend did not prevent me from having certain fears and anxieties about getting married. The nearer Kim and I approached the decision to marry, the more I was filled with a paralyzing fear. Was I ready? Was I making the right choice? Was Kim the right person to marry? Would she make me happy? Then one fatal night, I shared these thoughts and concerns with my dad. Perhaps each of us have moments in our lives when it feels like time slows down or the air becomes still and everything around us seems to draw in, marking that moment as one we will never forget. My dad, giving his response to my concerns, was such a moment for me. With a knowing smile, he said, Seth, you're being totally selfish. So I'm going to make this really simple. Marriage isn't for you. You don't marry to make yourself happy. You marry to make someone else happy. More than that, your marriage isn't for yourself. You're marrying for a family. Not just for the in-laws and all of that nonsense, but for your future children. Who do you want to help you raise them? Who do you want to influence them? Marriage isn't for you. It's not about you. Marriage is about the person you married. It was in that very moment I knew that Kim was the right person to marry. I realized that I wanted to make her happy, to see her smile every day, to make her laugh every day. I wanted to be a part of her family, and my family wanted her to be a part of ours. And thinking back on all the times I had seen her play with my nieces, I knew that she was the one with whom I wanted to build our own family. My father's advice was both shocking and revelatory. It went against the grain of today's Walmart philosophy, which is, if it doesn't make you happy, you can take it back and get a new one. No, a true marriage and true love is never about you. It's about the person you love, their wants, their needs, their hopes, and their dreams. Selfishness demands, what's in it for me? While love asks, what can I give? Some time ago, my wife showed me what it means to love selflessly. For many months, my heart had been hardening with a mixture of fear and resentment. Then after the pressure had built up to where neither of us could stand it, emotions erupted. I was callous. I was selfish. But instead of matching my selfishness, Kim did something beyond wonderful. She showed an outpouring of love. Laying aside all the pain and anguish I had caused her, she lovingly took me in her arms and soothed my soul. I realized that I had forgotten my dad's advice. While Kim's side of the marriage had been to love me, my side of the marriage had become all about me. This awful realization brought me to tears, and I promised my wife that I would try better. To all who are reading this article, married, almost married, single, or even sworn to bachelor or bachelorette, I want you to know that marriage isn't for you. No true relationship of love is for you. Love is about the person you love. And paradoxically, the more you truly love that person, the more love you receive. And not just from your significant other, but from their friends, their family, and thousands of others you would never have met had your love remained self-centered. Truly, love and marriage isn't for you. It's for others. Love is others-centered. May we live that way. Amen? Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for the day. And, And Lord, I know that I have failed in loving well and want to honor you by the way that we, I care and we care for others, God. I pray that we would take heed lest we fall, and that we would honor and glorify you with our lives and with our actions. Lord, that we would love you as you loved us. Jesus, your love truly was others-centered as you came and you died for us. And may we live for you.